As we begin today, um, obviously everyone's minds and hearts are heavy over what is happening uh, globally, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and that's the, that's the story that we see. There's so many other stories happening simultaneously that are equally heartbreaking. And so we pause today to start with prayer. Um, as one of our friends says, not just because prayer is a last resort, but because it is where we always start. This week, I was grateful for a quote that was stuck in my head, and um, something that has helped me, and hopefully it will be helpful for you this morning. It's from the great African bishop and key theologian through church history, St. Augustine. He uses this image and this parable. He says, Hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are. And courage to see that they do not remain as they are. And it helped me this week as I had a 10-year-old son in the backseat of a car asking me questions about what is happening in the world. It helped me as I try to explain that at a 10-year-old level and try to understand it myself at a 10-year-old level. Help me to know that anger is an offspring of hope. And it's allowed. But it also challenged me to remember that anger is not an only child. And that these are times that call for courage from people who call the kingdom of God their home. And so today we pray together, Jesus, we say to you that we lament and we grieve. And as you challenged us to do, we mourn with those who mourn. And we grieve over violence in the world and all of the forms that it shows up. And we remember that you yourself willingly became a victim of violence. Willingly became a victim of a powerful empire. who was sinfully set on expanding their power regardless of what it cost others. That you were crushed beneath the weight of that violence and abusive power. And in doing that, you defeat the myth that violence fixes things. 
You overcame violence. You overcame death itself. You overcame the power of an aggressive and oppressive empire. And your kingdom still stands. In Ukraine, who are praying in streets, who are singing in bomb shelters, but not only believers, all fellow humans. And for those in Russia who are also fearful about what this will mean for them, who are using their voice to protest, even though they know what that will cost them. We pray for them as well. We pray for our leaders and leaders around the world to have a righteous kind of anger at the way things are and to have the courage to see that they do not remain that way. We ask for those who are infatuated with power to be brought to repentance. We ask for those who are afraid of power to be given a courage that they do not have in their own strength. We pray for those who have lost lives and family members whose lives will never be the same because of the fear and trauma inflicted on them. We pray for your healing presence. We pray boldly today that you would do in the world what we have seen you do through scripture in the past. That there have been violent and wicked leaders who were brought to repentance. Whose violence was checked. And when they came face to face with a glimpse of the reality of who you are, they were humbled. Even though pride had been their way of life. We pray for that today. We believe that this world is yours and we trust you with it. And as your people, we hope, which means we're angry at the way things are, but we have the courage to pray and to act and to believe, to see that they do not remain that way. Empires rise and empires fall. And often in their hubris, they bring their own destruction. We ask that out of the destruction, you would bring 
what seems impossible in the moment, which is peace. We pray that empires would be shown for what they are and that the kingdom would be seen for what it is. And we remember, even as we shared together and talked together just a couple of weeks back about your revolutionary sermon at the center of your teaching about what your kingdom looks like. We remember that you spoke those kind of revolutionary words under the reign of the oppressive Roman Empire. And that your impossible vision, which could just could not be given the reality of what was around you, still stands today. So we ask that you would make us people of your kingdom who would live according to your kingdom who would be peacemakers, who would mourn with those who mourn and somehow even in our anger give us courage to love even our enemies as we pray for them and as ultimately we pray for your redemption of all things. Give us the strength in that that we don't have ourselves. We ask it in your name, and we believe it is only possible in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's continue to hold in this space of prayer right now. I invite you to engage in prayer. To engage your hearts and minds in it. If you feel led to engage your voice in it. Let's continue to pray. As we've said, for brothers and sisters in Christ, but for brothers and sisters in humanity around the world. Particularly in the path of violence right now. Let's pray. Amen. Holy Spirit, we stay open to your leading today. We ask you to speak or silence us or move us, um, stop us. We, we just say that we're open 
and we want to move in obedience to you and in step with you. going to keep moving. If someone senses a leading from the Holy Spirit to stop us, then as you'll see from today's passage, interruptions are always welcome and are often where the actual story is. So if anybody senses that today, we are filled with the Holy Spirit as believers in Jesus. We are co-leaders together of a church a community that we share together, that we lead and serve together. And so if you get that sense, then, then please, green light. Okay? All right. Great. Luke chapter 7, starting with verse 36. Uh, we have a story uh, absolutely beautiful story here in the Gospel of Luke uh, that really does reveal to us in so many ways the heart of Jesus. And so we're going to move into that. And again, still sensing um, some uneasiness about where we are. So I'm listening. OK, you listen too. all right. Uh, starting with verse 36. Here's the story that Luke tells here in this gospel. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Real quick uh, insight on that, on the reclining at the table. Uh, don't think of this as uh, you're just leaning back in your chair at the table. OK, uh, in this kind of setting, in this day, in this time, in this place, uh, a table would have been lower to the ground and you would have been basically on the ground or on pillows. Uh, one elbow, usually the uh, left elbow uh, closest to the table. You're leaning towards the table where you could grab food from the table to eat with your right hand and your body is angled away from the table. And so your feet are away from the table and you're kind of angled next to each other like that. There's a, a, um, a passage in John, in the Gospel of John, describing the Last Supper where it talks about the Apostle John leaning into uh, Jesus. And, and so that's what is happening in, in that kind of setting. So you've got that uh, of the people sitting around the table in this way. That's what it means by reclining at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. 
Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii. A denarius is a coin that would have been given that basically one coin was one day's wages for your average uh, day laborer. Uh, so for a person, basically in our, in our setting, a minimum wage type of job, it would have been one day's worth of wages. So this person owed 500 day, days worth of wages. There was a person who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been given little, has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus, direct us through your word today. Amen. Amen. So a lot is going on here, and uh, we're going to try to work through this together. I am uh, aware of the time here, and we're going to try to work through this together. So the setting of this takes place at a Pharisee's house, we're told. Uh, this stands out to us at the beginning because oftentimes throughout the Gospels, we see the Pharisees set up as the opposition to Jesus. And that is true. Uh, but what we need to understand in the nuance of that is that in many aspects, Jesus and the Pharisees should have been the most likely partners. That's because the Pharisees were a set of religious leaders who had dedicated their lives to studying the scriptures, but not just studying the scriptures, putting them into practice, not just to please God, but also because they believed that God would not send his Messiah to come and rescue the people of Israel until the people had been prepared. And so there was this sense that they saw themselves as the preparers of the way for the Messiah. Now we know as we talked last week that John the Baptist is the one who actually fulfilled that role in a way that was shocking and controversial to the Pharisees. But they saw themselves in that kind of path, that they were preparing the way for the Messiah. Not just that they knew the scriptures inside and out, but they dedicated their lives to practicing them and not just for themselves, but they wanted to make sure the entire community together was living according to the scriptures so that the way would be prepared for the Messiah 
to come. So you can see how they should have been the most likely allies to Jesus and partners to Jesus, aligning with him as the Messiah that God sends to rescue his people. But they were not. They did not understand Jesus' mission. They did not align with the way that Jesus was doing this. In fact, part of the thing that offended them the most was the way that Jesus was openly embracing people who had been pushed to the margins by the Pharisees because these were people who were unclean in their eyes. These were people who were sinners in their eyes. They were people who were slowing down the arrival of the Messiah. And yet Jesus is going out to these very people and embracing them and in many ways putting them at the center of his story. So that's where so much of the opposition and the tension comes. They saw themselves as guardians of the scriptures and guardians of God himself. And they thought that Jesus was an affront to that. They were offended by him. And so that's where we get this opposition. But multiple times you will see specific individual Pharisees who seem to have a curiosity about Jesus. They seem to be drawn to Jesus and they want to know more about him. In this setting, it could be that. It could be that this Pharisee, Simon, senses that maybe there is something about Jesus. So I want to invite him in to hear more about his teaching to hear more about his vision of the kingdom of God. And is this the one that we have been waiting for? It could have been that kind of environment. It also could have been an attempt to set a trap for Jesus. We see the Pharisees doing that often. Another thing is that Jesus, as his popularity is growing, as this teacher that the common people are really drawn to, maybe this person sees Jesus as somewhat of a threat to their own power their own power balance. And so it's an attempt to bring Jesus close to maybe develop some kind of relationship so that he might be able to control Jesus to a certain extent that never works out. Um, and so all of these different things might have been in play. And maybe it was a uh, Pharisee is a person of, of high social standing. Jesus is becoming a person of high social standing. Maybe I can increase my social standing by being seen with this person, whether I agree with him or not. And so all of these things could be at play here. And what's likely happening with the setting itself is that we've got a, more of a courtyard situation rather than inside of a house. A person who would have been uh, high social status, wealthy, uh, often would have had a courtyard in, in a scenario like this and in this day and time where larger meals and gatherings would be held. Uh, also as a way for people who are passing by to see the activity that is happening there. And so in the middle of all of this, we see that this woman interrupts the scene. This is not how Simon saw the story going. This was not his plan. But as we've already said, interruptions often end up in the kingdom of God being the very center of the story. And so this woman enters in and begins to express her gratitude to Jesus. We're not given a name to her in this passage. The only thing we're told about her is this designation that she was known to have lived a sinful life in that town. She was known to have lived a sinful life in that town. Now this is where it gets tricky and we have to be sensitive here, okay? Oftentimes in the church, the church 
has failed by, I want to be careful in how I'm saying this, I'm asking the Holy Spirit to help me in this, but by sexualizing women and by elevating sexual sin, especially in connection to women, and especially as a way to try to control women. I don't think that's what's happening here with us taking the step of saying that this woman likely because of the phrase that gets used, again, I'm trying to be really careful here with this, but because of the phrase that gets used in the cultural context, it most likely would have been a euphemism that this woman had been a prostitute. Again, we're not taking that step of making an assumption that because she's a woman and she's described as sinful that we're going to sexualize that. We're not saying that, okay? We're not doing that. We're not taking this step of assumption that is heaping shame on her as a woman in the culture of that time and adding to that layer. We're not saying that. In fact, because the gospel of Luke and the other gospels include similar stories like this, they're not putting shame on this woman by referencing her past sinful life and saying it in a way that people of the culture of that time would have taken the step to say they're saying she was most likely a prostitute. They're not adding shame to her. Instead, what Jesus is doing in this moment and what the Gospel of Luke is doing in this moment by placing her story here at this key moment, especially as an opposition story to Simon the Pharisee, is to elevate her and not to put shame on her, but to reveal her inherent worth and dignity as a person, worth and dignity that had been taken away from her by the culture around her. And Jesus in this moment and Luke in writing this story rejects that shame that has been placed on her. And instead puts her at the center of the story and elevates her as an image of what the kingdom of God looks like. Versus who? A Pharisee. An expert in the scriptures. Not just the knowledge of them, but the practice of them. And who is the one that gets honored in the story? This woman, this woman. So that's what Jesus so often does. And the Gospels so often do that. The fact that the Gospels intentionally include the fact that uh, it, they often speak about sinners and prostitutes is, is the language that they use. They are intentionally including people that had been excluded and shame heaped on them. Jesus does not build taller piles of shame. Jesus digs deeper wells of grace. And that's what he's doing right here in 
this story. She comes in and it says she has this alabaster jar of perfume and she pours this out on Jesus's feet. She's weeping out of the gratitude of who Jesus is, the fact that she would be included and brought in when the entire culture had excluded her. She's wetting his feet with tears. As Jesus mentions here, it would have been common courtesy for a host when you're bringing a guest into your house to wash have the uh, guests feet washed because you wear open sandals and you're walking around dusty roads with animals all over the place and so it would have been common courtesy for someone to have seen to this with Jesus as a guest but that was ignored and she did not ignore it and what was refused of Jesus by his well-to-do guest is provided by her what she has her own tears of gratitude, washing Jesus' feet. And what should have been a basic act of hospitality becomes a radical display of extravagant love and gratitude for who Jesus is in this world and to her. In her weeping, she's wetting his feet with her tears. She pours perfume on his feet. She's kissing his feet. She's using her hair to dry his feet. This is another important piece of the context that in this day and time, a Jewish woman in public would not have let her hair down. That was only a private thing. That was only in the privacy of the home. And she does this in a way that it would have scandalized everybody around the table except her and except Jesus. It's absolutely beautiful. Again, this is included not for shame or to sexualize. It's included to elevate, to say this is what the kingdom looks like. And in the mind of Simon and his guests, they're thinking, do you not know where you are? This is an absolute scandal. You are in the house of a Pharisee. Not only are you out in public, you are in a sacred place because this is the house of a Pharisee. This is an absolute scandal, but she did not care that she was in the house of a Pharisee. She only cared that she was at the feet of Jesus. And she makes this display of extravagant love that Jesus elevates and says, this is what the kingdom is about and what it is like. The host's the guests are scandalized, which seems to happen every time Jesus gets honored as the guest at a table. Even with his own disciples, it happens. So if you're ever inviting Jesus to a meal, just be prepared for that. In response, Simon judges. He passes judgment here. Uh, obviously, he's going to judge the woman, and we hear that in the way that he speaks of her. The kind of woman that she is, she is a sinner. And in his language, the demeaning words that he chooses to use for her. He judges the woman, but he also judges Jesus. And he says, maybe I brought this guy around because everybody keeps saying that, that there's something about him, that God is using him to do something, to stir something up. Many people are calling him a prophet. Some people are starting to think he might be the Messiah. Could he really be? Let me see for myself. Let me bring him close. And let me measure him up. And in this moment, he makes his decision. 
and he makes his judgment. Well, clearly this man is not a prophet because if he were, he would know what kind of woman she is. And Jesus turns to him and he says, hey, Simon, I have something I would like to tell you. And then he begins to tell him a story. Now, Simon should have known he was in trouble at that point. If you ever hear the parables of Jesus and you start to think, oh, yeah, oh, it's obvious this way. Then you're like, oh, man, I'm that person. (sighs) The turn and the twist of the story over and over again. But Jesus begins to tell him this simple parable. It's so short. It's so simple. And yet it strikes straight to the core heart of the whole thing. Simon, there were two people. One owed a year and a half worth of wages. The other owned, you know, owed like almost two months worth of wages. Neither one could pay. The money lender in his compassion and grace canceled both debts. Who do you think was more grateful? Who do you think loved more? And I love the way Simon says this. It's obvious, and yet he had to add in there, well, I suppose because he knew he was about to get hit with this. Well, I suppose the one who had been forgiven the greater debt. And then Jesus turns to the woman and says, I'm not talking about a made-up story anymore, Simon. I'm talking about a real life. And here is the living parable right in front of you. This is extravagant love poured out in response to unbelievable and undeserved grace, forgiveness of sin and cancellation of debt. Absolutely beautiful. This time Simon judges correctly. He judges wrong the first time. This time judges correctly. And Jesus tells him that you have judged correctly, Simon. And in judging correctly, Simon actually is judging himself in the process. And what Jesus does then is to embrace this woman And at the same time, he challenges Simon with the realization and the reality that forgiveness is offered to all and forgiveness is needed by all. It is offered to all and it is needed by all. A great debt of sin forgiven. And then the people start to whisper among themselves and think in their minds like Simon did, who could do this? Who is this person who says he can forgive sins? There's one really important thing that we can't miss in the parable. It's very important. It's the point of the parable. And it would be really easy for us to to miss this. But the point of the parable is not that the woman owed 500 denarii and Simon only owed 50. That's not the parable. It seems like that's the obvious connection and that would be the obvious application. And maybe even that's the application that Simon makes to himself. But when we pull back and we see the full scope and we see the full reality and we put this small story in the scope of the larger context of Scripture and how we know grace and forgiveness and sin work, then we know that the truth isn't that she owed 500 and Simon owed 50. Therefore, of course, his love is not as extravagant as hers. Instead, the point is that Simon also owed 500. He's also the person who owed 
500. They both owe the same debt. They are both equally sinners. Her sin is not greater than his. Her debt is not greater than his. They both owe the same debt. Only she is the one. And she is the only one who is able to have the eyes to see the depth of her own debt. The heart soft enough to be broken like that alabaster jar poured out in gratitude. The spiritual depth enough to recognize the Savior in front of her who could forgive her from her sins. The quite literally because of her anointed one. The promised Messiah worthy of her most extravagant love. She sees it and Simon does not. He misses the thing he's been waiting for all along. Now maybe with you this imagery and this language of debt and forgiveness of sin and canceling of debt is starting to ring some alarm bells for you. It's always important to see the larger story. And as we've said over and over again, Scripture is the best commentary of Scripture, the most trustworthy commentary of Scripture. The Word of God is in a conversation with itself, and it's always speaking truth and reality and revelation to what we find in different parts of it. And so there's this conversation going back and forth. We always need to pull back and see the larger Story. It's like our, our family is reading uh, every night. We're reading through Harry Potter together with our kids. And some of you are going to protest me now. All right. I'm just kidding. We're reading. So we're reading Harry Potter together. And we just finished book four this week. All right. It's so good. Don't tell them how it ends. OK. They don't know yet. All right. So um, we're reading through that. And this week, I've, I've seen all the movies. I haven't read all the books. I've seen all the movies. So I know where the story is going, right? And there's a moment in the story this week where Dumbledore says this line that I'm like, oh, oh, this is so important for like three books later, you know? This is so important. But they didn't know yet because they don't know the whole story. So I'm really trying to like implant this in their mind. I'm like really emphasizing doing my best Dumbledore impersonation, you know, as I'm reading this, trying to get this one line planted so that later the story will make sense. But they didn't get it because they don't see the whole story yet. The Gospels are like that. We need to see the whole story. And we often, especially as we're moving through this through the Gospel of Luke, we're trying to be diligent about moving through this together but we need to keep pulling back and remember where we've been and see how these stories are talking to each other and informing each other. This is happening right here in this passage. The debt is canceled and the sin forgiven. Is there any other part of the Gospel of Luke where we've been before that talks about the cancellation of debts, specifically a time or a year of the cancellation of debts. Anybody remember? Jubilee. Jubilee. Exactly. Anybody remember where that was? What passage that was? <laughs> In Luke. Exactly. All right. In Luke chapter 4. 
So in Luke chapter 4, this is the inaugural sermon of the ministry of Jesus, the way that Luke arranges his gospel. He puts this here at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus as this announcement of the kingdom arriving, also as this framework of the vision of what is going to happen in the ministry of Jesus, of what is going to unfold throughout this gospel. And so in this moment, Jesus is in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. He stands up, he takes the scroll of Isaiah, he finds the place where it was written. It's in Isaiah 61. He begins to read, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That's happening in this woman's life right here. This is good news to the poor. The anointed one is proclaiming good news to the poor. To proclaim freedom for the oppressed. She is oppressed and she needs freedom. Sight for the blind she sees in a way that Simon is not able to see. Release for the captives. She's experiencing that. And what? What's the next line? And to proclaim the what? The year of the Lord's favor. Scholars across the board agree that what Jesus is referring to and what Isaiah is referring to in that passage is the year of Jubilee. This year that was instituted in the law of Israel. This rhythm that every 50 years, there would be the 50th year would be set aside as a year of jubilee. And at that time, anyone who had gone into debt, the debts would be canceled. Anyone who had to sell their land, their inheritance of their family that God had given to them, anyone who had to sell that land because they were in such financial debt, that land would come back to them and that debt would be forgiven. Anyone who was enslaved, who had to sell themselves into slavery in order to save their families financially, those financial debts would be forgiven and that slave, the enslaved person would be set free. The year of Jubilee, it's a time of all debts canceled. And when Jesus finishes reading, it says he rolled up the scroll and he said this, this was his sermon. This was his commentary. This was his interpretation of that passage. This passage has been fulfilled today in your hearing. In other words, Jubilee is no longer a far off hope. And as we've talked before, even though it was instituted in the law, it was never practiced. Why? Because the people who are the money lenders aren't going to cancel the debts. Because the people who have the land aren't going to give it back. Because the people who have enslaved others will not set them free by their own brokenness and inhumanity. But the year of Jubilee, it was never practiced because of that. But Jesus says, it is now. It is here. This is Jubilee. I am Jubilee. I am Jubilee. And we see it played out right here in this moment. It's quite likely, by the way, that this woman understands all too well the full implications of Jubilee. 
and that she understands all too well the full implications of Isaiah 61, as we've talked about, as she understands all too well the full implications of the parable about a financial debt that a person was not able to pay. Once again, when you see a person in the Gospels get described as a prostitute, if your intuition is to jump to shaming someone for their sexual sin and to think that that's about a person's promiscuity, what kind of world are you living in? How do you make that jump? That's not the motivation of a person who is trapped in that kind of captivity. This is a person who likely, because life has broken down and fallen apart and there are no family safety nets or social safety nets set up for this person. They found themselves in the most desperate of places and they have nothing left to sell but themselves. And it is the only way to survive. And possibly to provide for what family they may be responsible for. She probably knew all too well the full implications of this parable, not just the debt of sin, but the financial debt as well. It's likely what put her in this place to begin with. And when she has this encounter with Jesus, the takeaway statement the commissioning statement over her life is, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus is Jubilee. Jesus is Jubilee. And that's your reality today, too. A story similar to this gets told in every one of the Gospels. Isn't that beautiful? It's, it's, it's really rare to have all of the Gospels have a, a story, like the same story show up in all of them. There's a lot of overlap, especially between the synoptics, as we talked about a lot. But to have a, the same story show up in four different Gospels, John tells a different version of this, uh, most likely a different person and a different event, but a similar uh, response and reaction. But all four of the Gospels tell the story of a woman anointing Jesus with either ointment or perfume and this way of, and, and the other three explicitly set it up that the purpose of the anointing is preparing Jesus for his burial. As we know, Jesus isn't afforded a proper burial because of Saturday being the Sabbath day. And so as he's taken down from the cross and put into the grave, there was no time for him to be given that proper burial. And the women come back on Sunday morning to try to do that. And they find the empty tomb. Jesus was never given the proper burial. Jesus was never properly anointed for burial. And so in three of the Gospels, it's explicitly said, and even Jesus in some of them says himself, what she is doing is preparing me for my burial. It's not as explicit here in Luke, but in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 9, we're making the turn and we're headed towards the cross so we can see it looming. We can see it looming. And again, Scripture is talking to itself. So we hear the other stories and we hear them speaking into understanding 
this one. In this, we see that. We see the reality that the cross is coming into view. And so we can see this and we can make that connection. That this is an anointing preparing Jesus for his burial. And the cross is going to be a far greater scandal and shame than anything Simon thinks he is seeing here. This story and the story that it foreshadows shows us exactly what Jesus does to shame, what he does to her shame, what he does to his shame, what he does to our shame. What the cross does to shame and the way it breaks the power of shame. Another key uh, theologian in the early centuries of the church, St. Athanasius, another African theologian. So much of church history is rooted in Africa, by the way. I need to take a, a, a sidestep real quick. This is important for us to say. And this was planned to say today, and I need to say this. As we are in Black History Month, it is important for us to acknowledge the key role that African-American theologians, pastors, preachers, congregations played in the civil rights movement in impacting our entire country, a catalytic movement that found so much of its roots in the church. Black history is church history. And as the church, we have to recognize that and honor that and always remember that. The abolition movement, so much of that came out of the church and people reading the Gospels and the life of Jesus and the Exodus story and being motivated that this, we serve the God who hears the cries of enslaved people and does something about it. And not just abolitionists who worked on behalf of enslaved people, but enslaved people who themselves led abolitionist movements and led their own freedom. And carved their own paths to freedom and brought so many others with them. Harriet, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, so many others. And it's so important for us to honor that and to remember that but listen as the christian church especially as the american church as we remember that black history is church history and that church history is black history it's so important for us to remember that um, that church history that african-american church history that the heritage of the african-american church to the global church is not just the civil rights movement and it's not just abolition. We go all the way back to the earliest days of Christianity and so much of the core and key theology and leaders that shaped the church was cradled in Africa. We have to remember that. We have to remember that as the globe, we have to see the global church and we have to see the whole scope and timeline of the full story. Christianity is born in Israel, but it's raised in Africa. And we stand in great debt. The entire world stands in great debt to the brilliant minds and the burning hearts of these early century theologians who shaped our understanding and continue to have impact on us today. 
St. Athanasius was another key theologian out of Africa. In his seminal work on the incarnation, here's what he has to say about the cross. He says, a marvelous and mighty paradox has thus occurred. For the death which they thought to inflict on him as dishonor and disgrace has become the glorious monument to death's defeat. And that's what Jesus does to shame. The shame and the scandal of the cross becomes the glory and the grace of the gospel story. And that's what he's doing in your life, too. He speaks the same words over you. As the cross is coming into view as a church, we're, we're about to turn into Lent. We're turning the corner into Lent. Next Sunday is the first Sunday of Lent. It's this time in the church season, church calendar, the global church, where we begin to make our way towards the cross. Yes, we anticipate Easter Sunday coming into view. and We celebrate the victory of the resurrection, but not before we walk the painful way to the cross with Jesus and his disciples. And that's what Lent is about. This week is Ash Wednesday. This Wednesday, I'm going to put a slide up. Uh, our, our friends at Seedbed are hosting an event on Wednesday night. If you would like to be a part of that and register for that, that is free. Uh, also, every day through Lent, there'll be readings available through our friends as well. I encourage you to participate in that. But we are turning that corner. The cross is coming into view. And what this incredible woman does in this story is beginning to set the stage. The anointing for the burial of Jesus. The cross is coming into view. A marvelous and mighty paradox has thus occurred. For the death which they thought to inflict on him as dishonor and disgrace has become the glorious monument to death's defeat. And that's your story. That's your story. We come to the table today. Another meal around another table where Jesus spoke and did scandalous things. Where Jesus talked to us about the reality of debts canceled and sin forgiven. When Jesus was with his disciples on their last night, he took the bread that was on the table and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body, broken to make you whole. And he took the cup that was on the table and he said, this cup is my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sin, for the cancellation of debt. This is my extravagant love, not alabaster broken open but my own body broken open and poured out in the most extravagant love the world has ever seen. Every time you share in this, remember what I have done and embrace in a new and fresh way the reality of this word spoken over you. Your sins are forgiven because of the death of Jesus Christ. Your debt has been paid by Jesus Christ, the riches of heaven broken out, broken open and poured out for you.
Go in peace, he says. As we share in this meal together today, I invite you to remember this and to participate. Come and tear off a piece of the bread and as you do, remember what he has done for you. Take the cup that is given to you and remember what he has done for you. What is your response to that? We're not asking that you have the same exact response that she has in this story. But what is that inside of you? Extravagant love is the only logical response to what Jesus Christ has done for us. So we come to the table and we come in gratitude for our debts canceled and our sins forgiven because of the scandal and the shame and the glory and the grace of the cross of Jesus. Amen.